Hello and welcome to the Small Business Bro Podcast. I am your host and I'm your bro, Gabriel Stoudemire. Today I'm joined with Andrew Chisholm. He is a loan officer and a real estate investor. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it, Gabe. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So uh, why don't we talk about just kind of what your uh, business is with the day-to-day doing the loan officer and then also uh, some of the investments that you've done Um, Just kind of give the audience an idea of what you're doing right now. Yeah, so um, day-to-day kind of looks like just um, either reaching out to realtors, to connections that you already have, um, following up with them on deals. So I mainly do, I'm a loan officer, so I help with the financing on single-family homes. I help with investors um, purchasing homes, and um, we have a lot of different products for that. Being a mortgage broker, um, it's a little different than a normal lender. Um, we work with uh, over twenty lenders, um, and we're always adding new ones. Um, so th- that's kind of the biggest difference between us and other lenders. Um, so that's kind of a day to day reach out to realtors, kind of work through um, loans you already have, and and other networking opportunities. Cool. And what was the name of your uh, company that you work uh, with? So I work with Hanover Mortgage. Okay. Hanover Mer- Mortgage. All right. So what got you to the loan officer world? And if you would, just go through kind of like the education that you have and then what led you to that field particularly. Yeah. So um, going through college, I got a business degree. I minored in accounting and finance and then... I started out working with my dad, actually, um, doing renovations on um, multi-units. So we would renovate them, get them ready. So I did a lot of property management, kind of overseeing subcontractors um, and then doing hands-on work myself. So I've always had a like for real estate. Um, And then I actually got into the mortgage side of it through a real estate agent that I knew. So that's a good... um, Point of just like who you know um, will get you to where you're at sometimes. Um, so I got connected with Hanover Mortgage through a real estate agent, a friend of mine. And then um, I always liked the number side of things. I got minor in accounting and finance. So I um, went there, got licensed, studied for uh, the license in South Carolina, um, got licensed and then started doing um, loan originating back in April of 21. So it's only been, it's going up on three years now. Okay, cool. So when you, uh, when you were looking at the loan industry is where you were thinking about going, what was your goal for the, for the financing part? Were you trying to just land whatever you could, or were you kind of interested in doing like real and real estate investments and loaning for that? What was the mindset there? Yeah, so um, the mindset behind that, I actually, one of my brothers is a real estate agent and I had a decent amount of connections in real estate already. Um, I like the number side, so I was wanting to get a, a good grasp on the mortgage side of things and I personally want to do some uh, of my own investments and I do currently do some of my own investments um, in real estate, but that was a big part of um, getting into the mortgage side of things is learning all that backdoor stuff, how it all runs, the underwriting of a of a deal. Um, that was a big part. 
And would you say that that's kind of helped out with evaluating investments and stuff now that you know the mortgage side and you're able to kind of shop around and find the best rates and all that? Does that have a good effect, I guess? Yeah, no, it definitely has a good effect. Um, and especially that was, the, like I mentioned before, the big thing for me was um, get going to a mortgage broker um, instead of just a bank um, or a direct lender um, because they have so many different options. Um, that was a big thing and, and learning that and gives you a wide variety, especially in investing. Okay, cool. So I want to talk about the first year that you started doing the the loan. What would you call it? Lending? Would you say yeah. that you like? Okay. So when you started lending, what was the first year like? Because I know with a lot of different professions relating to real estate, whether it be like contractors who do the work or the real estate agents or the lenders, I'm assuming it picks up somewhat slowly at first before you start really like rolling and having constant leads. Yeah. So it definitely, it always starts out a little slow. It's almost, it's, it's building a business. Um, so it started out slow. It's really, you got to get your name recognition out there. You got to let your friends, everyone know this is what I'm doing now. Um, it's almost becomes a part of your conversation. Not that you like push it on people, but you, make that a part of conversation of like, this is what I do. This is who I am now. Like, um, do you always letting people know that it started out a little slower? So I had to get everyone to know I was doing it. And then the biggest part of it for lending in a sense is getting realtors to trust you. Um, cause they, everyone, they haven't 50 lenders reaching out to them to use them. So you have to be good at what you do. Um, and you just have to be, great at at communicating and getting things done right and i think one idea that you brought up is the the idea of marketing yourself almost to your personal network and that's an idea in the book thou shall prosper by i don't remember his name i think his last name's Lappin or something like that, Daniel Lappin, maybe Rabbi Daniel Lappin, but he wrote this book called Thou Shall Prosper, and it's basically a summary of how the Jewish culture views money. And so a big part of that is they take pride in business and just in occupation, and they always tend to share that with the people around them, which inevitably will lead to prosper. It will lead to more business or connections being made elsewhere, recommendations, whatever you want to call it. And so I think that's a huge point for anybody who's out there considering starting a business. Make sure that you're talking about it and and kind of sharing that with your network. So I think that's a really good point. So at what point, I mean, how long did it take you to land your first loan? Just out of curiosity. So my first first loan uh, is actually funny. So a friend of mine, um, he's a pilot and everything, and he was uh, going to buy a house. And I told him I was getting into financing. I was studying for my test. And he's like, well, I'm buying a house in a month, so you have 30 days. So I I was like studying through that material, like setting up the test like to go get the, the licensing and I was like burning through it, like, hey, I have a deal as soon as I get licensed. So I got licensed, and then he went under contract like a week later. So um, it was a lot. I had some good mentors um, at Hanover Mortgage. Um, guy that was doing it for over 20 years was kind of like my mentor, helping um, helping me through that process. 
Um, and that was, I got my first deal within a week. But then the next month or two was a little slow because it was still getting your name right. out there. Um, but yeah, it was pretty quick. That's awesome. I, I think that's probably better than what most people can say. <laughs> I know that's better than me when I started. It took me a while before I got my first client, but uh, that, that's really cool. So, and just just so I can know, I'm assuming there's different ways that mortgage companies structure their pay. So within the industry, like what does that kind of look like? Is it a percentage based or is it you're on, you know, some people are on salary. How do, how do the mortgage companies pay loan officers? Yeah. So the pay for loan officers, it depends on the company. Um, a lot of banks will either have a small base salary and then they'll have what they call basis points. Um, either 50 basis points, it's almost like a percentage. So just imagine 50 basis points is like half a percent. Um, so um, usually that's what some of the banks will do, but the banks will provide leads, like the branches and everything. You get leads from there. Um, other places like Hanover Mortgage is just a strictly commission-based, so it's strictly a percentage. Um, and you get paid off of the loan amount, not the purchase price of the property. You get paid off the loan amount. And it's just a percentage. Um, there are different grids. If you do a certain amount of loans in a month, you get paid more, um, like half a million, you get paid a little bit higher percentage. And then you do over a million, you get paid a little bit more. Um, so it, there is no incentive to send it to a certain realtor, I mean, certain lender or anything. Um, it's really just because the lender pays us directly. Um, so that's kind of a, it's good for buyers. Like he's not sending it to a lender for a specific rate or pay. The lenders all pay us the same. Um, so it's it's advantageous for buyers. Um, it's, we're looking out for your best interest. Gotcha. Okay, so after that first deal, you said the next couple of months were a little bit slow. I'm curious, what all were you doing during that time frame to get some more leads in and kind of network? Yeah, so when I first started out, um, the company did provide some lead generating sources. Um, there's like Zillow, there's Realtor.com, which they call it OpCity, um, and then there's so there's other lead generating sources. So that was kind of a start. You have to, the lead generating sources are tough because you have to weed through a lot of like non-serious buyers or unqualified buyers but you, um, so and then to find what you would call a hot lead is someone that's really actively looking um, and then also just networking with uh, real estate agents um, giving them calls and then going to networking groups um, so I started out and joined a networking group called PNC um, professional networking um, connections and there's multiple networking groups out there you got BNI you got GBN um, and there's PNC um, and then there's one called Liberty but that is more so of a networking group that you kind of find certain roles in there like realtor you have a lender you have a financial person you have an insurance person and so that is like a little home group that like Everyone's goal is to help each other grow their business. Okay, so that's kind of like y'all are all passing each other's information around when you're dealing with the with clients and with the public or other people in the industry. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's a that's pretty much what that is. Yeah, 
Okay. And then just networking in general, like in Greenville, you get the Greenville Chamber of Commerce. I did that for a little bit and um, just networking groups that happen all the time. Okay. Yeah, I guess I was, when you say that the Hanover will can provide some leads and I've, and I've heard that about some real estate agents who will work for a big brokerage or something that, that gives them leads. I always wonder how hot the leads are because... I remember when I was looking for a house, I'd get on Zillow and then I'd see something and be like, oh, let me request more information or whatever. And like within five minutes, I'd be getting phone calls from loan officers and from real estate agents. And uh, and I would feel kind of bad because I was like, I'm not actually seriously like considering buying. I just wanted to, to see a little bit more about the property. But I guess that's, a, that's something that you have to deal with is weeding through all that. So... What I'm curious, what kind of form did the leads take? Like, do you just get a sheet of, well, here's a whole bunch of people and their phone numbers? Or, I mean, how, what does that kind of look like for the leads? Yeah, so the lead would come in, if it was through one of those lead generating sources, um, lead would come in, it would be like a purchase price amount, um, their income possibly that they put in there, um, a phone number and an email. And then your goal is to like call them, follow up. A lot of times it's like, no one answers um, or you never can get a hold of them other times you get a hold of them and they're just like hey, I'm not actually really seriously looking just looking around or they already have a lender they're pre-approved oh I'm already pre-approved that's something you would hear um, and then there's some people that would be like uh, kind of interested and then but the thing is like okay hey fill out this application let me get a little more information so I can see what you'd be approved for they don't really do that and you have to kind of follow up and you almost so what we do is you put them those ones that are kind of interested you put them in a crm system so it's just like a almost like a drip campaign of like that it sends out emails at certain times like hey rates are coming down or something like that just whatever things are in the news or you can set them up on that to kind of stay in front of the the lead in a sense so they oh yeah they Every time they see an email or something like that, they remember your name. Gotcha. So it's kind of like you're sending out a ping every once in a while just to make sure that they're, you know, they're getting your name. They're, they've got the recognition. They know when it's time to, to go look. They're, they've got somebody in their mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. All right. So after uh, after that first little while, and I, th- I guess bringing it to today, what do you see as the most effective form of of lead generation or marketing within your own personal business um for sure real estate agents um those are the hottest leads i mean they're dealing with buyers that are going to buy typically um nine times out of ten they're actually going to be buying um and realtors know we need to get this person pre-approved before we go show them houses because they're going to waste their time if this person's not actually set up financially to purchase a house. Um, so yeah, leads from realtors is your hottest, best source. So network with as much as you can with realtors. Right. Okay. I got you. What would you say, I guess this is another question. What would you say are kind of some of the strengths and, uh, maybe some of the weaknesses of the way that your, your business with, Hanover operates in terms of like you correct me if I'm wrong, but you are a 1099 like independent contractor. Is that? Um, yes, we're actually, we are W2. Okay. Um, I gotcha. Yeah. We are W2, but it's just strictly commission. So it's a kind of a weird 
set up right. in a sense, but pr I, you could look at it as pretty much 1099 self-employed okay. because you you don't have any base, you don't have any income. You only way you get paid is you bring in a deal. So. Gotcha. So is it flexible with how many hours you you go to the office, or how does how does that kind of look? Yeah. So that was one of the reasons that I chose Hanover. Um, the Two of the reasons is I chose it because of the competitiveness of Hanover being able to have a lot of lending sources and different products than most places, and then also the flexibility. So Hanover Mortgage is not super strict on, hey, you have to be here 9 o'clock or to 5 o'clock. You can be, I mean, you're fully commissioned, so you're thought to be out networking whoever you're talking to that's a possible lead so you're out and doing work that also provided me the opportunity to do my own investing and manage properties so I bought a duplex um, in Inman with a couple partners and and I was able to manage that whole process with the contractors and everything and get that running because I had such flexible um, work schedule cool so on that property, were you the one shopping around for the loans for it, or did you use private money, or, or how did that work? Yeah, so uh, we actually did it through Hanover. Um, I personally can't do my own loans, but gotcha. um, the owner of the company uh, did the loan for that one, and we got a, a good deal on it, um, kind of an employee benefit deal on it, but it's... Uh, that's how we ca we went through the financing for there, and I was able to manage most of the day-to-day -day operations with my schedule. Okay, so I'm going to back up and just talk about the real estate investing in general, and kind of get to an understanding about how did the idea of buying rental properties come to you, and in, in uh, in an actionable form where you're like, okay, yeah, this seems like a good idea for me to do, you know, some real estate investing and, and park my money there. When, how did you kind of learn about it and, and how did that process look for searching for the first property after you decided that's what you wanted to do? Yeah. So going back to kind of just working with my, my dad, um, doing multifamily renovations, um, I've enjoyed the real estate market just from that, seeing how the rents were collected, how um, much you could do once you, if you found a property that was a little more run down and you could fix it up, the appreciation that you gained from it. Um, also, some different uh, investors like Robert Kiyosaki, um, small, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, him and Grant Cardone, I've, I've listened to some of his um, investing um, tactics and things. It's like listening to those guys who've gotten there and seeing them talk about it and then seeing how my dad did it and that really piqued my interest in real estate and and that's kind of what got me started. Cool. Okay. So as far as the like nitty-gritty details with the investments, I know typically and you're the expert here, so obviously if I'm off on this, say it, but with the investment property loans, generally you have to put more down. Is that right? Yeah, so investment properties, if you're buying it as a traditional conventional loan, um, you have to put 20% down minimum. 
Um, typically, 25 is kind of the best rate pricing if you put a little more down. Okay. Um, but there's a few different investment opportunities you can do. There's some, and that what they call debt service coverage loans, um, and those are no income docs. So um, what that means is you don't have to show any income to buy the property. Um, all you have to do is use the market rent from the property. Um, and so the, what a lot of people will do is like if they're small business owners and they're writing everything off, they're trying to avoid taxes, right? Um, which is fine. That's totally good It's uh, as long as it's legal. Um, but you're just writing off all your expenses and everything. So when your tax return comes, you're not showing a lot of income. So what these DSCR loans are, debt service coverage um, loans, is they'll use the market rent of the property to help you qualify. So say it's a um, long-term rental, it can rent for 2000 a month. And they'll use that to help you qualify. All right, this is what the property, um, this is how much you'll have to put down, 25%. And you want to have a one-to-one -one ratio where the rent covers your property, um, principal and interest, taxes and insurance, and then it'll qualify. Um, so you can do those and they are pretty they are pretty flexible. You can go down to a one to 0.8 ratio, just which means the income from the property will cover 80% of the principal interest, tax and insurance. And then what the lender will do is, hey, you just put 30% down instead. Um, so they want you to put a little more skin in the game, but it's a cool product. Um, but yeah, investment loans typically, if you're going traditionally, are 20% minimum. Gotcha. So on the DSCR loans, do those work for any number of units or is it strictly just commercial units, which would be like four, I guess it's anything over four. So five and up is, I think, what you would consider commercial and then four and under can still be a residential loan. So how does that, does the DSCR loan work for all of them or are there certain requirements for the property? Yeah, so the DSCR loan can work for um, one to four units. It, there are some lenders that will do, and we have some that will do over five, but that is now you're getting into commercial. That's okay. um, commercial. The DSCR loans, um, actually, we can do in over 38 states. Um, we can do a lot, large part of the country. And the cool thing with the DSCR loans is you can do it for Airbnb income as well, where say you wanted to buy a property in Gatlinburg up near Pigeon Forge, right? Um, you can do it on a cab and use the air DNA and look at, all right, what's, what's this property going to generate with short-term rental income? And you can use that to qualify as the market rent. Um, and if the property has already been used as an Airbnb, you can look at the past two years of what that property generated. So um, it can, yeah, over four units is considered commercial, but some DSCR loans can be used for that. Okay, cool. So I did not know that you could use actually Airbnb income to qualify on a DSCR loan, but is that how it always is or does that kind of fluctuate with the market where sometimes the lending for it is a little bit tighter? Like they'll say, well, you have to have two years of of shown Air, Airbnb income or is it always like that where you can just look at the projections on AirDNA? Um, it, it, it recently has been where you can look at the projections. Um, it Now, lenders can tighten up and things do change where they'll be like, hey, we want 30% down now. 
um, instead of 25, it all they will follow the market and be like, okay, that's kind of what happened with the commercial lending just in this past year. Um, it really tightened up because the rates were going up so much and the commercial lending got a lot tighter. Um, they wanted you to put more down. They wanted the rate was higher, and it was so. Yeah, it can change like the amount putting down and everything. Um, lenders will kind of follow the economic outlook. Right. Okay. Because I know you and I briefly talked about at some point there was a quadplex that my wife and I were looking at potentially trying to do like a house hack, and the issue with it was. It was at a price where we would have needed some kind of DSCR help, I guess, to qualify for it. But the issue was it was renting way, I would say, way under what the market value for the rent was. And then because of that, I think at the time, the DSCR wouldn't have worked on it because the, the cost of it per month was way higher than what it was currently collecting in rents. And so the struggle I found there was just that it could it was running based off of what the current rent was, not what the market average would have been for that. So do you see that as kind of a common problem, or does that kind of switch around sometimes? Yeah, so um, I believe that one might have been an FHA when we were looking at oh, it. Oh, it was an FHA. Yeah, it was. So the FHA, um, but the DSCR, yeah, I mean, it, they'll base it off of, what the area is renting um, for the FHA when it's over three or four units, then um, they'll call what they call a validity test, and you have to um, show like that the property can pay the total payment, um, and that's where it's tough with where rates are. Um, so the property has to be able to pay the total principal interest in taxes and insurance, um, and they only let you use seventy-five percent of that. So say right. that property is generating four thousand, um, but they only let you use seventy five percent of that. Your total mortgage has to be less than three thousand. Um, so um, that's where it can kind of get tough on those multi units over uh, two, and then be putting a smaller amount down. Gotcha. Okay. So on the so then on the DSCR loan. Does it so it it's gonna run on what the market averages, not on what the property is currently generating? Yes, it will run on what the market average is, but it'll be based on the condition of the property. So that's where you're right. If if the property's really run down, they're gonna look at all right, what's this property in its current condition can it rent for in the market? They're not gonna base it off of when it's renovated, they're gonna base it off what the current condition of the property is. I think that's where you're getting at. So with that being said, what what kind of loan options are there if you were trying to buy a somewhat rundown property that you wanted to fix up and then you know, start renting at a higher rate? So you can do conventional if you're going to do a single family home, you could do a conventional loan option. And a lot of people, you mentioned house hacking, a lot of people will do that, fix it up, and then either rent out bedrooms or if they're single or something they'll rent out bedrooms and then if it's a duplex they'll renovate one side and live in the other and and then um, they'll renovate the other one while they have money Um, you can do that conventional if it's you can do an FHA on 
a multi-unit, like say it's two units, du duplex, you can put the minimum down, 3.5%, and buy it and then um, live in one side of it. So Okay, gotcha. Now, when it comes to the, I guess the, what you should say, the commercial side, which is going to be five units and up, I guess, is that mainly going to be funded with conventional loans or is there a different type of loan for the, for the larger units? No, so that um, over five units, that's commercial. That's okay. when it becomes commercial. Yeah. And so it's not conventional. Gotcha. Okay. So what does the commercial loan look like generally with the requirements? And then, so what is the down payment typically going to be like 25 to 30%? Is that what it is? Yeah. So 25 or 30% usually on commercial, um, they still, that's still roughly about um, what they'll do. When you get over five units like that, you can come and start looking into arms. A lot of commercial will be arms, which is um, adjustable rate mortgages, and they will be fixed either for five years or three years. Or it depends on which arm you pick, sometimes seven. Um, and those will be fixed for, say, say it's a five-year arm. It's fixed for the first five years, and then after that it becomes an adjustable um, rate mortgage, which it, the rate moves to wherever the market's at. Um, so a lot of times investors will refinance their loan before that becomes an adjustable rate. Um, but yeah, that's typically what it looks like over five units when you're getting to that. It's all commercial. Okay. So with the, with the five-year arm, three-year arm, seven-year arm, is that the same thing as a balloon payment where after those three, five, or seven years, the, the bank can call the note due, or is that different? No, it's a little different. The five-year, three-year, seven-year arm, 10-year arm, depends on the arm you do. Um, that is based on just when the rate becomes adjustable, where the rate starts adjusting to the market. Um, the balloon loan is when it's, say you have five years and then the balloon, that's when the entire loan is due. Um, the remaining balance of the loan is due. So that's a balloon payment um, where they call the rest of the amount. And so definitely investors will usually refinance before that unless they come across a bunch of money, which the reason they're leveraging is to keep money in their pocket for other deals. So they'll usually refinance. Okay. So what if they wanted to just pay off the property over 30 years. I mean, what do you do in that situation? Because if it's a balloon payment, obviously you couldn't do that over 30 years if the bank called the note due after five. And then if it's an adjustable rate mortgage, it's kind of sketchy to try and pay off an adjustable rate over 30 years because you just don't know mm -hmm. you know, what the rate's going to be over that time span. So how can you get to where you're paying off the commercial real estate? Or is that never really the goal other than just purchasing in cash? No, I mean, if you wanted to pay it off over 30 years, you could refinance it again into another arm, just which would be another five-year fixed term or seven-year. Or you could, uh, you can do 30-year fixed um, mortgages with a commercial as well. Um, okay. Just when a lot of times when I mentioned arms, they can be on commercial, they can be better interest rates. So it's why a lot of people will take them. Um, and be like, hey, we'll refinance this in four years. It's gonna because it's gonna come due in five, but we'll refinance it in four. So um, that's the reason a lot of them do the arms in the beginning. But you can do thirty-year fixed. Okay, 
I gotcha. So, if they wanted to refinance, let's say, on a commercial piece of property after a five-year uh, arm loan, what would they get lending on? Would it be on the principal that they have left on the property, or is it based on the property value? So, if they, it depends on if they're if they're taking are they taking cash out of the property, or are they gonna? So, on a cash out, you can do up to seventy five percent of the value of the property so you can get a loan up to 75 percent so if you're doing a cash out and you want to say that property appraised for you bought it for three hundred thousand right and it appraised for six hundred thousand and you only have a balance of 300 on there so you're going to take all the way up to 75 percent of 600 so that'll be your new um, loan balance but you're getting that equity out of the property um, and it's tax-free because it's looked at as a loan so you don't pay taxes on that because it's debt so that extra equity that you taken out you get to use for whatever you want and then if it's a multi-unit property it's still paying for itself still paying the mortgage and everything so you're not seeing yeah the payments higher but you're not seeing any of that extra Added, okay. coming out of your discretionary income. Gotcha. So I'm trying to wrap, wrap my head around this the, with the cash out refinance. So you would go to the lender and you would get a refinance and they would give you 75% of the property's value if that's what you wanted. Mm-hmm. And then with that 75%, I'm assuming the way it works is you would take that big lump sum of money and I guess do you pay off the old loan so that you can get the new loan and then you keep the remainder is that how it works or does the what happens to the old loan that you had yeah so the old loans paid off you're refinancing it it's a new loan so the new lender pays the remaining balance of that old loan off and then they give you a new loan for the new amount so let's go back to that example so you say you have a three hundred thousand dollar old loan on the property right you go to this new lender and they say, all right, the property's worth 600000 So we'll give you 75% of that. Um, so you do 600000 times 75%. They'll give you a new loan for 450000 So they'll give you a new loan for 50000 You take that, they have to take the three hundred and pay off the old loan. And then you have left $150,000 that you can do whatever you want with now. Um, and that's because you literally have just taken out some of the equity of the property and that's the portion that you can do you can buy another property with it's tax-free you don't have to pay taxes on that because it's a loan it's debt but it's good debt Um, it's not bad debt as Robert Kiyosaki would talk about right okay so I think I understand that part when it comes to the rent side of it if you have say a property that's cash flowing that you bought for 300,000 when you, and then let's say five years later, it is worth 600,000 and you go ahead and do a cash out refinance and you pull out the 75%, which would be 450,000. So now your payment on the property has increased. It was at three, it was based on 300,000 originally. Now it's increased to 450,000. 
do you is it typically the case that the rents will match up to where you're still cash flowing at the four hundred and fifty thousand standpoint, or is it oftentimes just your cash flow decreases, but you get a big lump sum of debt basically that you can use for other stuff? What is the relationship with the rent there? Yeah, so it's a good point. Um, typically, it depends on how rents have gone in the market. If rents have gone up, then um, you will have a little more cash flow, but your loan increased. So your cash flow will probably decrease some, but you've got a large chunk of money that you can now use to go buy another deal. So you go buy another deal and say you're buying a deal that's maybe a little more rundown and you're putting money into it. You're getting it at a good price because it's a little more rundown. But once you get it up and running and get it to the market rents, then you should be able to increase your cash flow again. Um, because you you use that chunk of money from your other property. You're almost you, the properties almost help you get more properties. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So, in the commercial space, is the value of the property based on the property itself, or is it based on the rent that the property brings in? So it's definitely based. It's both. It's okay. based on like the condition of the property. Um, based on the area, the land, like what other properties around are selling like that. And then, yes, what the property is cash flowing. Um, if the rents are up to market, then it's going to be more valuable. If their rents are under market, then it's going to be less valuable because the property is not cash flowing as much. Commercial looks at how much is the property generating plus the condition of the property and location and everything. So gotcha. it's, it's a little both. Okay, and is that kind of where the term the cap rate comes in in, in defining the value of the property? Or, or So the cap rate's based on like what the property's generating and what the person's asking. So if you're going to buy a property and they're asking for a certain amount, like say they're asking for a million um, dollars for a property, you're going to look at, all right, what is the property generating according to what they're asking um, how much is how much is your return on your investment is that that's what the cap rate really is okay so it's just just measuring what the return on the investment would be yeah okay gotcha okay well i want to transition now to a different side of the lending industry which is the idea of manufactured homes and mobile homes and so i know you've kind of looked into this as a investment strategy do you want to talk about that for a minute yeah, so I've gotten just through my network and connections is um, I have some opportunity to be able to get some of the manufactured homes at wholesale prices and everything. Um, the main thing in this area is looking, trying to find land. Um, it's expensive and it's hard and there's a lot of competition in the area. Um, but the manufactured homes and getting them set up and everything, um, the resale on it is pretty pretty good the margin there um, once it's set up and everything there's just such a high demand in Greenville um, and trying to find a I was looking into four bedroom a two bath um, manufactured home finding a four bedroom home in the lower 200s is, is really hard in in Greenville Taylor's like Greer um, just the upstate of uh, South Carolina there's so much growth in this area um, so the return and the 
margin is there. Um, it's that's kind of what I was looking into. Okay, so the basic strategy with that would be buy a manufactured home at a wholesale price, put it on a piece of land, and then sell them together. Obviously, sell the land in the, in the home, and then you should get at that point a pretty good return because you've got the wholesale price, but you're selling it for retail pricing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that, and you're you're putting it all together. You're not paying top dollar to have it put together. Um, I have connections where people they'll come out and set it up and um, put the foundation on it and everything. Because um, on manufactured homes, you need to have it on a permanent foundation and detitled um, to get financing. Um, so if someone wanted to buy it um, from you with a conventional loan or an FHA loan, they would need to have the pro, uh, mobile home detitled and on a permanent foundation with an engineer certification. Um, so you're going to have to do that for most buyers unless you get a cash buyer that just comes in and buys a cash. Someone that's So there's a chance you don't have to do that, but most majority of the time you will. Um, but yeah. Okay. So is it possible in that strategy would you ever consider, and I don't, and, and again, I don't know if this is actually a, a possibility, but if you were to buy it at a wholesale price, let's say you got a good deal on land and you put them together, it's on a permanent foundation, it's detitled, everything's good to go there, then will the bank assess its value based on the current market rate and you could potentially do a cash out refinance where you get lending on 75% and potentially are able to pull out all the money that you put into it? Is that a viable option or do you just, is it pretty much you just have to sell it? No, you could. If you paid cash for everything, um, you could do a cash out refinance once it was all done, um, get 75% of your funds back out, um, and then just rent it as an investment property, a long-term rental. That's definitely an option. Um, If you, in buying them at the wholesale price, they want you to pay cash for it. They're not going to give you any financing for that. So... Yeah, you could do that. Okay, interesting. So, I guess, what are you specifically looking for in investments kind of moving forward over the next little while? Are you looking at flips, the manufactured homes, duplexes? Like, what is your your kind of goal? Yeah, so the first one I've done was a duplex, um, mainly a flip. We got it renovated. Um, and so we got it at a good price, renovated it, got long-term renters in there. And then, so it's paying for itself, covers the mortgage and everything. There's a little bit of cash flow, um, and that we just really just leave it in there to kind of pay for anything HVAC or anything goes up wrong. But the main goal of that one is to flip it when rates come down a little bit, um, maybe to a house hacker where they'll live in one side. Um, and cause they'll pay more because they can make the numbers work better than an investor. Um, so that's flips. I do, I'm looking into flips, um, and that's kind of what those manufactured homes are too. It's really a flip, but you're doing it with a new manufactured home instead of an existing single-family home. So flips, um, and then I would say more long-term rentals would be later in the game because um, you really want to get your cash flow up. Cash flow is the biggest thing. Um, when you buy long-term rentals and it's slow money. It's good money, but it's it's really where, as Grant Cardone and them say, it's really where you park your money after you've got it up. Because um, you want to park it in 
good assets, which real estate is, um, but you want to, the main focus is getting cash flow. Um, so flips are more like chunks of money. Um, and then I've been looking into a lot of short-term rentals, Airbnb. Um, there's a lot of good cash flow there, especially in prime areas of the market. Okay, gotcha. With the duplex that you did renovate, what what kind of systems or, or management, uh, I, I guess, ideas did you have with that in terms of when the rehab's going, you have to deal with different subcontractors. So how did you manage that and how would you recommend to have systems or processes in place to manage the rehabs on a flip like that? Yeah, so I managed it because I had a little more flexible schedule, um, but it's really finding good contractors and everything is through your network, um, asking, hey, who's good? What? Who, who do you recommend? Um, so finding a good network of people and asking for recommendations, someone that's used them before is always a good start. Like, And then we got several quotes and everything for the project. Um, but then that's pretty much the biggest part is trying to build your, once you've used those guys and, and seen how they've done their work, is trying to keep those connections and like provide more work where they'll come back and, and help. Um, once you've once you've used them gotcha okay well i think we can go into the the next segment which is just going to be talking about some of the next steps that you're going to take in your business with the loan with the loan industry and then also with the investment strategies how are you planning to grow both sides there yeah so um as things have gotten busier, um, just keep networking, growing loans. Um, I've gotten to the point where I've added in an assistant and she kind of handles a lot of the busy work, I guess you could say, as far as the paperwork and just collecting information from people. I still deal with the customers directly that, that are buying homes and talk to them and all that, but she kind of handles a lot of the work behind the scenes, which allows me more time of being out there talking to realtors and networking. Um, and the networking not only is good for loans, but for investment opportunities. And the next steps of growing is finding those opportunities to do a flip. Um, and when you know a lot of realtors, they're, they'll tell you, hey, we got this deal or this deal out there. Um, so the networking and allowing yourself to get more time. You don't you need to be okay with, okay, I'm going to pay an assistant a little bit of money to allow me to have more time. Because um, the more time you have, the more things you can do, the more ways you can make money. Um, time is your most valuable asset. True. I gotcha. Well, what about the real estate investment side? What are you going to be looking for? So right now, I think the main thing I'm looking for is probably doing some in Airbnb. Um, that's kind of my main focus at the moment and still open to flips um, if I come across a, um, some land and stuff like that for the manufactured homes. But um, Airbnb, I think right now, um, even in the Greenville area is pretty strong, but um, looking outside of our market in in um, either Tennessee or Georgia and just other parts of the country. Um, depending on, like, South Carolina has pretty high um, taxes for investment property, whereas, like, Tennessee and some of those other places don't. So um, 
that's kind of where I'm looking at as far as investment opportunities and also maybe even small businesses um, to purchase and kind of operate. It's like I said, it's main thing is cash flow. Where can you increase your cash flow? Cool. Let's talk about that. What kind of small businesses are you looking at and what would that kind of process look like, especially from the lending side? Yeah. So small businesses, the trade industry is like in very high demand um, in this area. There's so many people not going into the trade industry. Um, There's a lot of people going into just nine to five white collar jobs and the trade industry has kind of been left behind somehow, but it's a very high paying industry. Um, so looking into any businesses that are for sale in that industry would be kind of a focus or even ones where you don't have to be there. So like laundromats, um, we and just storage units, things like that, that generate income where you not required a lot of your time and hands on work. Right. Cool. Well, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I just wanted to say I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for uh, thanks for the opportunity, and love to keep uh, keep in touch. Yeah, for sure. Is there uh, what's the best way that people can get in contact with you in case they need to get a loan or want to talk to you about investing? Yes, yeah, so you can reach out to me. Um, just look me up on HanoverMortgage.com. It's in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, I have my email is a Chisholm, uh, so it's a c h i s h o l m at hanovermtg.com. That's my email. You can shoot me an email, and then my contact information is on the website, um, my phone number, and everything. And uh, if you need to reach out to me, just reach out that way. Sweet. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, To the viewers, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more podcasts coming soon.